Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Joshua Mesrich. Dr. Mesrich is an associate professor of surgery in the Division of Multi-Organ Transplantation at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health, where he also runs an immunology lab. In When Death Becomes Life, he takes readers through the field of transplant surgery, from its incredible history to stories of his own experiences working in the field and some of the memorable patients whose lives he has touched. We spoke with Dr. Mesrich about some of the unique challenges that transplant surgery presents and what new developments may be on the horizon. So joining us on the phone right now, we have Dr. Joshua Mesrich, author of When Death Becomes Life. And Dr. Mesrich, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right. Um, So to start us off, at the start of the book, you open with a story about um, bringing an organ on a plane, and there's a storm, and you contemplate your own mortality in that moment. Why start the book out with that story? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've gotten a lot of questions about this. I, I start and end the book on on plane flights. And I think uh, one of the interesting things about our profession of transplant surgery is that we go out and get the organs. And a lot of people don't realize that. They have certain assumptions about how that works. Um, and it didn't really cross their mind. You know, a big part of the book is about the donors. And I, I think there is this sort of adventurous kind of amazing part of transplant that involves kind of going out and, and bringing these organs to us and we serve uh, as the stewards of these organs. Um, sometimes the flights are totally fine, but we fly in these small planes and sometimes uh, they get a little bit crazy. And I think most people uh, can kind of relate to a story like that. Actually, there's a funny, funny comment or a story I sometimes tell that after one really bad uh, flight, uh, the pilots turned back and said, uh, we'd much rather uh, fly freight. And I said, why? And they said, freight doesn't scream. <laughs> <laughs> the pilots seem comfortable with anything, so. <laughs> mm-hmm. to, to me, reading that, um, it really sort of illustrated how fragile life is, which is a recurring thing throughout the book as you deal with all these patients who have these um, medical issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's so true. I think... Um, you know, transplant sits at this kind of uh, fine line between life and death, and um, you, you really kind of get a sense about how some people end up dying and doing activities that we all do or that you, it would never occur to you, um, you know, that it could lead to the end of your life. And it definitely makes you hug your kids a little tighter mm-hmm. when you get back home. Um, I mean, to be honest, transplant, the discipline played a role in even defining death or brain death. So it really is one of these fields that kind of kind of sits right on this line. Mm-hmm. As I was reading, I felt very aware of my body and my organs. Like as I'm reading all of these different things that can happen to a kidney or a liver, I just could almost feel my own kidneys reacting and clenching up and like, is this going to happen to me? Um, does doing this work make you think about your own body, your own mortality? Yeah, definitely. I um, 
I think about this a lot. Like uh, as you move these organs around uh, and think about how they work, you sometimes do kind of think about what your organs are doing at any given time, or when you stress them out, or uh, what they what they would say if they could each kind of <laughs> on their own. Um, but yeah, it's hard not to have moments where you think about where you fall into it, and that at some point it'll be you. Um, um, it's it's something probably all all people in medicine deal with, but certainly in transplant. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side of that, as much as um, it does make you aware of your own human condition, um, in that moment as a transplant surgeon, you're essentially playing God in a way, and people are putting their lives in your hands. How do you handle that responsibility? Yeah, I mean, I, I like to tell people that the hardest part of being a surgeon uh, is really kind of dealing with these kinds of things, the level of responsibility, the constant decision-making, and especially when you make errors or bad decisions. I mean, the truth is we're humans and we don't always get it right. And sometimes uh, we would have made the same decision again based on what we knew, but sometimes there are scenarios where you really wish you had done something differently. And um, everyone has to develop some sort of coping mechanism or way to deal with that. And uh, some of those mechanisms are healthy and some aren't. (laughs) I mean, for me, like, so humor has always been a big part of my life, and I, I certainly use that as a coping mechanism, always trying to find kind of the funny angle on things, which, which is sometimes interesting when you're dealing with something terrible and, and yet you find humor. But um, I think the other thing is, is talking about things, working together with colleagues, being really, really honest, um, being honest with the patients. I mean, I find patients understand that we're humans, and as long as we are there with them and work with them through whatever happens, um, they they can really uh, connect with that and respect that. But, you know, one of the things I wanted to explore in my book was how these pioneers who really championed transplant were able to persist despite all the terrible outcomes, all the people around them telling them they were crazy, they were murderers, you know, signing petitions saying they needed to get out of there. And yet they persisted, and I really wanted to understand what what were the coping mechanisms. How did they, you know, keep doing what they were doing without um, kind of losing faith? Mm-hmm. Um, it's an incredible struggle. Absolutely. Uh, I want to talk about those uh, some of those early pioneers. Actually, uh, so on the one hand, as you talk about in the book, they were very bold. They took these incredible risks, flew in the face of what people thought they should do in the time. Um, but on the other hand, some of the ways they went about things, and you mentioned this in the book, wouldn't be acceptable today um, mm-hmm. due to uh, higher standards. Is this a good thing? Does this limit discoveries? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really great question and something uh, I think about a lot. So mm-hmm. there certainly were a lot of things that were done back in the 50s and 60s that were bold, and some worked and some didn't, and some of it... Uh, led to great discoveries, but of course some of it failed. So certainly moving forward with actually transplanting organs and trying the different strategies like radiating recipients or trying these new medications that we didn't really understand um, ultimately did work out. Um, There was a bunch of animal transplants that were performed, transplanting uh, chimpanzee or baboon organs into people um, that didn't work out. 
And, uh, you know, there was, it was a bit unclear what types of consent were used. And there are a million stories like this. I, I personally still uh, think innovation can happen in our current era, and I think so much of it is happening. Mm -hmm. um, but it's an interesting topic. When you ask uh, kind of uh, pioneers of today about that, I think half will tell you this never, never could have happened now, and then the other half will say it definitely can happen um, and in many ways, it can happen better. I still think we can do innovation with, with consent um, and in an ethical way, but it is uh, complicated. It takes a lot of thought, a lot of financial support to innovate. Um, so there are certain challenges that didn't exist back then. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about it, like the invention of dialysis, the invention of cardiac bypass, these people did it by... Go, you know, going to five and dime stores and putting together these machines like in their back room or their garage and then just trying it on patients. And, um, you know, dialysis, uh, uh, Dr. Kolf did it during occupied, uh, he, he lived in the Netherlands uh, while occupied by the Germans in World War II and snuck around at night and built these machines with basically no financial support and just tried it on patients. If you tried to do this now, it would cost a billion dollars and, you know, take years. Um, but that said, I mean, think about all of the massive advancements we're currently witnessing in healthcare. Um, we certainly are still innovating. One of the fascinating things for me about reading this history was how quickly all of this came about relatively. Um, you look back a century ago transplant surgery was essentially the stuff of science fiction. So what, um, where do you think we can go next? Are there other achievements you think the field can unlock in the coming years? Yeah, absolutely. So I like to say that transplant went from science fiction to kind of science to reality from basically 1950 to 1983 when cyclosporum was approved. So really in a 30-year period, it's just remarkable how much was accomplished. And, and now, like, transplant is, is pretty routine, actually. Our expectations for good outcomes are so high, um, it's really unbelievable. But I do think we're on the verge, in my opinion, of another era of massive innovation and excitement. So despite the fact that we may have no idea how to pay for healthcare, we are on the verge of all these incredible, incredible innovations. So like in our field, I'd like to point out a few things. One, I think xenotransplantation, or the transplant of organs from animals, is um, kind of back in the forefront. It was mm -hmm. tried uh, back in the 60s using uh, primate organs, and that ultimately is not being done for lots of different reasons. Um, but um, the idea of transplanting pig organs into humans uh, has become very exciting, and by using gene editing, using CRISPR-Cas9 technology, uh, a, a number of pigs have been developed that uh, are a little more that have some genes knocked out that make them more compatible with humans. And I think we're on the verge in the next uh, five years of trials of pig kidneys into humans. It won't be a home run overnight, but I'd like to hope in my lifetime that will be a valid option for patients. Um, there are lots of other areas of excitement. Um, immunosuppression is getting more interesting. Um, we now put organs on pumps and actually repair them outside the body where they work on this pump and we can uh, improve the organ, we can put gene therapy into them. This is all a bit investigational, but I think this stuff's gonna enter the transplant arena uh, all in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
it's a very exciting time in that way. Jumping back to um, talking about animal tra- animal transplants, uh, the xenotransplantation. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, both just now and in the book um, this concept of pigs being raised um, mm-hmm. genetically to be donors for humans. Um, is there an ethical question there about essentially raising these animals to ultimately harvest their organs for humans? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a really interesting topic. Um, um, I just finished reading the book Never Let Me Go, uh, which was kind of with this fiction book about raising humans uh, for organ donation. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously not, a, not something one would ever do. You know, part of the reason that uh, people stopped experimenting with primates as donors, meaning chimpanzees or baboons or other apes, um, because the reality is science-wise, that, that would actually probably work already. But there are a number of different reasons why we don't do that. Um, one, you know, chimpanzees are a protected uh, species. You know, breeding primates is very difficult and complicated. But they're so human-like, uh, of course, people um, would not feel comfortable with that, would not feel ethically okay with that. Um, and so that's uh, not something anyone's going to do. Um, with pigs, you know, I mean, there's been acceptance in this society of breeding pigs and other animals like that for consumption. Um, we already use uh, pig uh, valves for, for heart surgery all the time and other tissue from pigs. Um, it's just something that society has been comfortable with. Um, and so there does not seem at this point to be a lot of resistance to it. Now the science is, is not quite there yet, so it's, it will be interesting to see when trials get announced, you know, what is the blowback uh, in terms of the ethics about using pigs. But given kind of what we already do with those animals, it does seem like society at this point has accepted that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a complicated topic. Um, um, you know, and just thinking about the role of animals in research, um, so many advances have been made using it, things that we wouldn't be able to do, but um, it, is a, it is a complex topic that raises a lot of emotions. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to talk about you a little bit. So, obviously, this job takes up a lot of your time. Um, I feel like every other chapter, there's an anecdote about you waking up in the middle of the night to a call mm-hmm. or going back home and thinking about something. Um, so what's your life like outside of being a surgeon? Are you able to maintain any sort of work-life balance? I mean, it's a, it's a constant battle, that's for sure. Um, I, uh, I don't never know if balance is the right word, but I, I definitely have been able to um, kind of do things in my life where I'm able to have a career and then have a family life. My wife is a surgeon as well, and we have two daughters who, of course, are so important to me. Um, I think it's hard. I think the hardest part, honestly, for me is not so much the time at work, but trying to be there in the moment when you're away from work. I write a lot about kind of the anxiety of worrying about patients who aren't doing well. Your head is kind of spinning. You're, you're constantly getting on the computer to check on how people are doing. So to me, the hardest part is being at home and really being there with your family. And it's definitely something that I struggle with. I do think, you know, living here in, where I live in Wisconsin, working at such a great place at, at um, uh, UW-Madison, a hospital that runs really well, an infrastructure that is so great, um, a short commute time. You know, you make all these decisions in life 
that help you do the things you want to do um, um, and make it work. I work with so many great people, and that helps a lot. Um, I do uh, – it is interesting. When I was younger, I always thought, wouldn't it be fun to marry, like, an architect or an artist so that I'd have this totally different – uh, uh, life at home and would learn about all these other things. But having a spouse who's a surgeon has actually been uh, really great in terms of being able to really talk about these types of things and, and talk about the challenges that maybe we wouldn't have recognized uh, were the hard part of doing our career. And I, so I just think the biggest thing is really trying to focus on truly being there when you're there. Um, and, uh, you know, finding your ways to connect with your family uh, when you can. This is funny, but I've recently been watching Grey's Anatomy with one of my daughters, which mm. is a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> um, but the truth is, like, it's actually really fun because they do bring up a lot of interesting ethical topics, a lot of cases in uh, that are surgical, and I find that something we're talking about these things, it's actually been a really fun way to connect. So. I just think finding activities and, and, and ways to try and really be there with the family has been uh, the way I've dealt with that. But it's always, it's always hard. Mm. What um, advice would you have for medical students who might be considering going into transplant surgery? Mm. You know, I think um, it's really an incredible field, it's, um, and there are lots of different ways to be involved in transplant. It's definitely... Um, demanding, but I think what is so great about it is, uh, you know, when you take care of sick patients, um, patients that, you know, know that they may die, uh, it is amazing how much they teach you and show you, and you see some of, some of the best of humanity. I mean, you see people who are suffering, who are scared, um, but those patients have taught me so much. The other piece is the donor side. I think the fact that we have donors both living and deceased is so amazing and to be able to take part in this gift this incredibly heroic gift i mean i look at living donors as people who essentially run into a burning building to save someone although the data is really good and you know when you look at the numbers the risk profile is really good it's still this kind of leap into the unknown and i think the same heroism exists with the deceased donors they're giving this legacy, this gift of life. And so being a part of this exchange is so special, and I feel honored about that. Mm-hmm. You'll always see when a, tra- when a transplant patient gets a transplant, you'll go down to the waiting room, and they're always the patients that will have these big groups of family and friends as support because they've been waiting for so long, and they've been on the verge of death, and their life's about to change, and you come down, and they'll cheer. But at the same time, they know that, someone either has just died to give this gift or or someone just went through a surgery, you know, to give it as a living donor. And so there's this kind of amazing kind of understanding that this is all so great, but there's some sadness or tragedy involved as well. And I think it's just this incredible play of human emotions that you get to be a part of. Um, so that is amazing. And then on top of that, we've got all this amazing science, all of these amazing uh, um, role models in our field. Um, so it really is a, an incredible field. You definitely have to be someone who's okay with going into work and not knowing what your day or night is going to look like. Mm-hmm. So if you like <laughs> a very scheduled type of life, this one is a bit challenging. But um, it, is a, it is a very special field. All right. 
Uh, so one more question we have for you, and this is a question that we ask all of the guests on our podcast. Mm-hmm. Since this is um, primarily for teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Oh my goodness, <laughs> wasn't expecting that, but I know the answer. So interestingly, I uh, you may or may not know this about me, but in college I ended up being a Russian language and literature major, uh, which is maybe surprising as a transplant surgeon, but I think a big reason for that is in high school I had um, a Russian teacher named Tasi Skvir, and uh, I kind of just took Russian as a freshman in high school just because it sounded cool. but. It was, she really kind of opened my eyes to this whole, this foreign culture, the, this society, the language, the literature that I just found so fascinating. Um, and uh, I, I actually, with the book coming out, I reconnected with her uh, recently and she's reading it now. And um, I do have these very fond memories. She's definitely someone who kind of opened my eyes to the world a little bit. Um, so she, she's the one I would say. That's great. Well, Dr. Mesrich, thank you so much for talking with us today. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Have a good okay. one. Okay. All right, you too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.